All right. Hey, let me do this. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to dive into Exodus chapter five. Lord, thank you for today. God, I thank you for each of these men here and God, just their families. God, just that we have a chance this morning on a Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. to peel away from maybe work schedules, to peel away from the busyness and uh, sort of craziness of life and come before you to be an encouragement to one another as we uh, open your word. Uh, God, I just pray that during this time that you clearly communicate what it looks like to be um, a godly man as we look at throwing down the gauntlet, uh, especially against fear, uh, fear of obedience and what, what, might, what might come, especially in light of a world uh, that is um, increasingly being known by their sin. And, and so, Father, I, I thank you that we have this chance to meet together. Lord, we do just specifically. We pray for New York. We pray for our country. We pray that um, as uh, we see over and over again what depravity and where depravity leads, or that we have a unique opportunity to share your gospel, to share your good news to a lost and dying world, that we have something different. We're not just a makeup of molecules as we look at what people are, but we have been created and made in your image, that we are connected to and we reflect the very character and nature of who you are. Lord, and that because of that, you saw fit that even when we were in our sin, you would send your son Jesus to die for us on the cross. Teach us what it means to walk in your ways. Teach us what it means to follow you. Reveal your spirit in this time. It's in your son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, if you have a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 5. I mentioned we're, we are going to be continuing uh, John Mark's uh, throwing down the gauntlet. And so he sent me a couple uh, passages. And um, today we're going to be talking about throwing down the gauntlet against uh, fear. And so... Um, just briefly, I know he's probably said this uh, the past couple times as I was, uh, if, you know, if you ever miss he, his podcast, Men's Bible Study with John Mark Caton, you can always catch that on uh, his podcast. And so, um, but what is throwing down the gauntlet? If you remember, uh, if you wanted to challenge someone to fight back in medieval times, you would take off your, your glove gauntlet, you'd throw it down on the ground, and then if you were going to accept the fight, you would basically come by and you'd pick it up, and that would be, okay, challenge accepted. And if you remember, if you throw down, the, throw down the gauntlet on the ground and then that person just turns and walks away, then that, that man <laughs> becomes your sort of, um, the best word I have is patsy, and I don't know if that's appropriate. Uh, but that man, basically, uh, he serves you during uh, the rest of the time uh, that you guys have a relationship. And so um, as we look at what it means to throw down the gauntlet, uh, we have, there are so many different sins there are so many different things that come, especially as men, that uh, over and over again sort of come at us and come at us and come at us. And if we're not careful, over and over again, they'll overrun us and overtake us. And we can't be all that God has created us to be. And so we, we must learn how to fight for our faith. And so uh, the first week we looked at faithlessness and how to, how to fight faithlessness, looking at David and Goliath. Uh, and then last week we actually looked at spiritual apathy. Uh, looking at Jonathan as he fights the Philistines while his father Saul was sort of just uh, sitting by apathetic toward what was going on and being surrounded by the enemy. Um, his son Jonathan comes in and uh, talking about talking through how we can fight spiritual apathy. Today, we want to look specifically at how to throw down the gauntlet against fear. Uh, fear and fear can be a big thing, but uh, fear specifically for what might happen when you are faithful. 
for what might happen when you're faithful. And to do that, I want to, want to turn to Exodus chapter 5 and look at a passage that's probably pretty familiar with us, a story that's at least a little bit familiar with us, especially if you've seen the movie. And so uh, as we dive into Exodus chapter 5, I think we're going to unfold sort of what does a life of obedience look like and what happens when our obedience leads to worldly consequences. And then sort of pushing it just a little bit further, saying, sometimes I think that we, as believers, are hesitant to obey because as we, uh, as we obey, we are fearful of the worldly consequences that we might receive in, in turn. And we're going to talk through some of those, but let's turn to our passage, Exodus chapter 5. Let me give you a little context <laughs> of what's going on. Uh, so if you back up way back, in Genesis chapter 12, and, and chapter 17, God looks to Abraham, right? So you sort of see the demise of the world over and over again in Genesis 1 through 11. You get to Genesis 12, something changes. God steps in because obviously if man's left to his own devices, we get things like the flood and Babel. And so instead, God, God says, okay, I'm going to step in. I'm going to make a covenant with Abraham. Now, in this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 17, he says, I'm going to promise you three things. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed or descendants. And I'm going to give you blessing. Those three things were promised over and over again. They were reiterated over and over and over again. Now, if you remember Abraham, he couldn't have a child. So that in and of itself, that he was promising these descendants that would number the stars, uh, becomes a little bit problematic. But the Lord shows his faithfulness and shows his faithfulness and shows his faithfulness over the course of the book of Genesis to where Israel... Right, which becomes, right, because so you have Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob's name gets turned to Israel. He has 12 sons. That becomes and is the start to the entire nation of Israel. And God is doing exactly what he said he'll do. He is blessing them. He is giving them descendants that number the stars. They're, get, they're growing into a big nation by the time we get into um, the book of Exodus. And so if you get to Exodus chapter 1, um, verse 7. Right, so if we back up, and again, we're just kind of building context for what the, uh, where we're going in Exodus chapter 5. But in 1 verse 7, it says, uh, But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. So if you remember, they end up in Egypt because of a famine. But in Egypt, even though they're in this sort of foreign land, they are growing and growing and growing so much so that they become a threat to the new king, the new Pharaoh, to come in to Egypt. And so Pharaoh's like, hey, this, this doesn't work. So instead of sort of reasoning it out, instead he just puts them into slavery. He throws them into captivity. And so you have, through the course of this time, you have um, Pharaoh holding these people, holding God's people under captivity. But to think that the Lord was absent during that time, we have to be very careful because what did he promise Abraham? Land, descendants, and blessing. God was still growing them more and more, even under that time of captivity. And so um, in 1, 8, and 9, we see a new king who did not know about Joseph came into power, and he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So you can see already the paranoia of why this comes to be. Then that brings us uh, basically to 13 and 14 in chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Okay. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. 
they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So that's sort of the situation that we're stepping into. That's the background of why, where Israel is, why we're there as we approach Exodus chapter 5. So then we know that another guy comes in on the scene and his name is Moses. And so uh, Moses is obviously, he, he's the guy that floated down the Nile and he floats down the Nile. Why? Because uh, the, Pharaoh was again, he, in his paranoia, he was going to kill all the boys. And so instead of being killed, his mother sends him down the Nile. He ends up growing up in Pharaoh's household. As he's growing up in Pharaoh's household, he knows uh, the Egyptian custom. He knows further that he's in sort of Pharaoh's uh, court. They know Moses. But then one day he goes out, he ends up killing a guy, right? I don't know how that, that was probably a gross summary of that situation. Uh, but he ends up killing a guy and he flees the country. And as he flees the country, he sort of runs away from all of Israel, all of his people, until one day God comes to him in the burning bush. And after five different excuses over and over and over again of Moses saying, I can't talk, I can't do this, I can't do it, I just don't want to go. Moses and then now his brother Aaron end up going back to Pharaoh and uh, they have the task of communicating from God to Pharaoh to let my people go, which is exactly where we end up in chapter five. And so now we have sort of the first encounter of Moses to Pharaoh. And this is what we see in, verse, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord God of Israel. So this is sort of the first encounter with Pharaoh. This is what God says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Now look at verse 2, though. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. So in the onset, in this first sort of encounter with Pharaoh, Moses simply just communicates what God told him to communicate. He was attempting uh, and seeking to be obedient to what God had called him to. Yet, Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world, says a couple things. First, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? How often do we hear that phrase? Maybe not explicitly. But how often do we see people's lives sort of mimic that same ethic? Who, who is the Lord that I should obey him? See, our obedience to God cannot be separated from our knowledge of God. If you were here this past Sunday, maybe you were in a life group or you heard John Mark teach about what it means to, to, to know God. Uh, there's a great book by J.I. Packer. We use it in our ministry academy on Sunday afternoons, but it's, uh, it's called Knowing God. And in that book, he makes a distinction between knowing about God and knowing of God. And what he basically says, he's like, look, we can know a lot about God. We can know characteristics. We can know theology. We can know these things. But to truly know God is to have an intimate relationship with him. And that only comes through meditating and continually going before his presence. The only way that we can be obedient, obedience to God runs in conjunction with a knowledge of God. Right? Because it's not just about knowing God, because even the demons know that, and they shudder. But to know God in an intimate way, as, as Scripture lays out, a knowledge of God that transforms the heart and mind and soul, and a knowledge of God that knows that He is King, and that He obeys Him as that King. So he says that, right? He says this phrase, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? And further, he goes on, he says, besides, so kind of kicking that, that even that point aside, he goes, I will not let Israel go. So Moses and Aaron tell him again. Through the passage, Moses and Aaron tell him again their mission. Kind of reiterate these points. And then Pharaoh comes back in verse 4. And he says this. 
The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous and you would stop them from their labor. So now we begin to see Pharaoh's heart behind this. Why is he stopping them? He's not going to have any workers. He's not going to be able to do all that he's supposed to do. It has nothing to do with these people and who they are or this God. It is simply Pharaoh doing what he wants to do. So while Moses is attempting to be obedient to God, Pharaoh isn't having it. So then further, Israel then suffers at the hand of Pharaoh uh, as Moses is doing, again, what God had called him to do. Look at verses 6 through 9. So now that this happened, what's Pharaoh's response? That that day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as their foremen. This is verse 6, now verse 7 of chapter 5. Don't continue to supply the brick with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on them, then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So in addition to Moses being obedient to what God had called him to do, in addition to sort of getting backlash initially from the conversation with Pharaoh, now Pharaoh is taking it out on the nation of Israel by saying, let's stop giving them straw, so that, but let's not change the quota of bricks. All right, and so the straw in the bricks, as those bricks dried, the straw would reinforce the, the strength of those bricks. And so without straw, what ends up happening is you end up having brittle bricks, and they would break apart, and you can't use them. So you have to have the straw in order to, to make the kind of bricks that they're doing. And, and so he basically says, let's take them out now. Rather than having other people come bring the straw to them, they have to go get the straw and make the bricks, and we're not going to change the timetable. And we're not going to change the number of bricks that are made. So clearly oppression is just increasing. And you got to, again, what's floating in the back of your mind is what is is God up to? Because Moses is doing exactly what God had called him to do. But what exactly is happening with with this nation? And so make more bricks, but with less straw. Uh, By the way, if you are a minister on staff and you ask for a pay raise, John Mark will use this passage against you. Uh, And uh, and so he said, uh, so they still had to meet their quota. And basically, they had daily oppression. If you look, skip down to verse 14. Uh, Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, Why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So now the foremen are ridiculing them. Right? They're coming in and saying, Why haven't you been keeping up with the quota? Knowing full well why they haven't been keeping up with the quota. And so you see this this daily oppression that happens over and over again. So the Israelite leaders, they go back to Pharaoh. And so as we continue to summarize chapter 5, they go back to Pharaoh and basically say, hey, why are you doing this? Why why is this happening? And Pharaoh tells them, "Uh, your leaders said, uh, you guys want to worship God, but I know that you're slackers. That's kind of how Pharaoh comes back at them. And so they leave, naturally, and who do they go to? Moses and Aaron. So they go now to Moses and Aaron, and if you pick up in verse 20, it says, when they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron. So these Israelite leaders, they had gone to Pharaoh. No, you guys want to worship God. Now I'm making your work harder. So they turn from Pharaoh and now go to Moses and Aaron. Um, and in verse 20, it says, when they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron who stood waiting to meet them. So they were already anticipating this. Verse 21, may the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to him, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, 
putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So now Moses was seeking to be obedient to God. He has now angered both sides in the process. He angered Pharaoh, and now he's angered the Israelites whom he's supposed to be helping deliver. And so uh, in, in this, we know that how the rest plays out. Okay, we know how the rest of the Exodus plays out and the plagues happen and all of that. But I, I sort of want to hang on this moment for just a minute and ask a question. If you are Moses at this point, what is sort of running through your head? Right? Say you don't know that the plagues are coming. You don't know how the Red Sea is going to be parted. You don't know about the law being given uh, just a few chapters later. You don't know about the covenant that God's going to make with you. You don't know any of that. All you know is sort of what's in front of you, that God had called you to be obedient, and now you're facing Pharaoh and Israel, the two people, who, both parties. What is running through your head? And, and for Moses, we actually get a glimpse of this. And if you go down to verse 22, it says, So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people. And you haven't rescued your people at all. So you see, even in Moses' response now, as he prays back to the Lord, he's like, look, I'm trying to be obedient, and clearly this isn't working out. And again, I know we know where the rest of the story goes, but if we hang on this moment for a second, I, I think that there is truth that obedience does not always bring immediate blessing. If one, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway that we're trying to drive at this morning when talking about throwing down fear in obedience is that we have to know that obedience does not always bring immediate blessing. We'll argue in a second how obedience will always lead to blessing or eventual blessing, but sometimes there is a delay, and sometimes that delay can last a lifetime. But as we, I think as men, then this, this idea scares us. Because here's the truth, if, it'll be, if all obedience all the time led to blessing immediately, at some point we'd, be, we'd, we'd get it, right? It'd be like me handing you a scratch-off ticket. I'm not, saying, I'm not advocating scratch-off tickets. This is just because I know some of you do that. Um, but if I hand you a scratch-off ticket and I say, this is guaranteed $20, all you have to do is scratch, off, scratch it off, what would you do? Scratch off the ticket and you get $20. Next time I come up to you, how likely are you to do that? You're going to do it again. Over and over again, if obedience led to immediate blessing, we could naturally begin to see, well, of course I'm going to be obedient because that is the sort of blessing. I need 20 bucks. I'll scratch off the ticket. And, but the thing is, is that's just not how life works. That's not how God, God's not a, a magic genie in this sense. I believe that sometimes we're afraid to be obedient because of the backlash we will receive from the secular world or because we fear what I'll call worldly consequences as a result we're afraid to be obedient because we fear the worldly consequences. Because sometimes blessing doesn't happen immediately. Just as a few examples, we may fear uh, ridicule from the world, right? So if I stand up for what is right, the, these people will, will laugh at me or mock at me for having held to this ethic or this position. We fear being removed from what is comfortable. So in our obedience, it might remove us from this worldly comfort if I go and make disciples of all nations, that means I might have to go out and move from my house and move to a different place or a different country. Or if I share the gospel with someone, I have to go seek them out and have hard conversations, and it's way easier just to talk about sports. 
We may fear being able to provide for ourselves and our family if we are obedient, right? If, I'm truly, if I truly am honest in my financial dealings, how will I ever have enough money? I see the corporate greed. I see that and pursue that. But if I'm obedient in this area, will I still be provided for? We may fear failure. What if I do all that God is calling, to, calling me to do and it doesn't work out in my life? We may also fear looking like a fool in our obedience and how it's so different than the world's ethic, the Bible says to do a lot of crazy things, right? It says to love your enemies. It says to care for orphans and widows, to humbly accept that you need a savior. Let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth, to set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, to not build your kingdom here. Crazy things like loving one woman, praying for and cherishing your children, all of these things over and over again the Bible has called us to do, and if we're not careful, we may fear worldly consequences of looking like a fool. When we peel back the layers of all that God is calling us to do, we have to see that sometimes our lack of obedience lies in the fear of worldly consequences. That God is going to call you to do something, and here's the truth of it. God's going to call you to do something, and you don't know where that will lead, and that scares the fire out of us. Because you don't know where that will lead if you truly begin to obey all that God has calling you to do. In little things, but also in the big things. We're men, right? We like to be in control. And of course, we need wisdom in all that we do. But true biblical discipleship is a call to abandon the world and pursue our king. Here's the truth. The more your life looks like the rest of the world, the more your life looks like the rest of the world, the more your life is, is content with the world's approval. And most likely, the less it looks like biblical obedience. I'm going to just say that one more time. The more your life looks like the rest of the world, the more your life is content with the world's approval, and most likely, the less it looks like biblical obedience. So, if, as we are seeking to obedient, what is driving us from, from maybe holding off in our obedience, so it's easy to be obedient in the easy things. It's harder to be obedient in some of the, the, the greater things when God is calling you maybe to step out and do great things for him and his kingdom. So let's look at three ways, just real quickly, just in the next few minutes, three ways to fight this fear of worldly consequence. Three ways to fight fear of worldly consequence. First, number one, understand obedience is not an option for a believer. Like before we even get into some of the technicals, I'm going to do three things. One of them is obedience is not an option. Right? It, is, it, is, um, it is what God has called us to do. John 14, 15, cannot be spelled out any clearer. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. <laughs> like that, 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 that's the, the basis of the gospel, the basis of Christianity. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you see the Great Commission. God is calling his people to go out, right? To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And then what does he say? So as you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them, about me, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. As part of the Great Commission, then as we are disciples obeying what God has called us to do, as we make disciples, we make disciples in such a way where they are following and being obedient and observing all that God has called them to. Because here's the thing, the alternative to obedience is disobedience. How many of you would agree that disobedience is a sin? Okay, good. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, I'm just going to blame it that it's before seven o'clock. 
right? Disobedience is a sin. And, and sometimes we are good at rationalizing. We're good at saying, oh, well, the Lord might not be calling. We get these like sort of gray truths and we end up walking out feeling really good about ourselves, but really disobedient. And what God is saying, he's saying, first, you have to understand that as a believer, obedience is not an option. Number two, make your obedience an act of worship. Make your obedience an act of worship. This, I think, gets to sort of the heart and the root of the problem. In our understanding of obeying God, sometimes we come out like it's some sort of set of rules that we have to just live by. Right? And we do these things because uh, it's the obligation that we have as believers that I'm supposed to do all that God has, God has called me to do. And though my life might be sort of miserable and boring, um, that's what I'm just supposed to do. And so our motivation, though we may, we may follow and do all that God has called us to do, we just live a life that is constantly uh, captured by obligation rather than worship. But what God says throughout his word, he says, no, in your obedience, as you are seeking to be obedient, this is worship. Worship is not isolated on Sunday morning. Worship's not, uh, you know, uh, just through singing or anything like that. He said, no, no, this is an entire lifestyle. And this is what we get in Romans 12, 1 and 2. What probably one of my favorite passages of scripture. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. So in view of the gospel, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. To offer yourselves not go do something, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says this, for this is your spiritual act of worship. It's not isolated on Sunday morning. It's not through song. It's not through any of that. It is a lifestyle of obedience that worships our king. There's a difference between an obligation to love my wife by giving her flowers and loving my wife, therefore I give her flowers, right? And if you guys don't see that, she definitely will. <laughs> The same goes with our love for the Lord. He is not just, we're not obligated to love God in our obedience. We have an opportunity to worship Him in our obedience. Number three, we believe the Lord honors obedience far greater. Okay, so in our third sort of how do we fight this fear, number one, we understand obedience is not an option for the believer. Number two, we make our obedience an act of worship. And number three, we must believe that the Lord honors obedience far greater than the world honors compliance. We must believe that the, the Lord honors obedience far greater than the world honors compliance. Luke eleven twenty eight says it this way, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's a promise in scripture. Though it might be delayed, though it might not look like you want it to do, there's a promise of blessing for those who hear the word of God and keep it. The, I think some of the frustration lies that when we look at the rest of the world, sometimes it looks like they're prosperous. In Psalm chapter 73, uh, if you're ever in a setting where you are looking at the sort of the prosperity of the wicked, Psalm 73 is a fantastic psalm to run to. Here's what happens. Uh, he says this um, in uh, 3 through 12. It says, For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the psalmist is coming in. He said, I envy. I looked at the arrogant. I, I, I looked at the arrogant. I looked at the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. And their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like the others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. 
I love that illustration. The, the, the imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. Sometimes when we look at the world, it may seem like they're being blessed for their disobedience. Sometimes when we look at the world, it may seem like the wicked is prospering. They may have all that this psalmist is just being honest and open and reflecting back to God, saying it looks like they've got it all. And they're being disobedient. They're doing whatever they want to do. And look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. The thing is, the psalm's not over. If you get down to, uh, and it, he keeps going uh, from 13 through 20. And then in verse 21, he sh the tone shifts. It says, when I became embittered, and my innermost being was wounded. So when I became bitter about these wicked who were prospering, and my innermost being was wounded from it, I was stupid. Right? Just say that with me. I was stupid. Okay, I'll just say it by myself. And didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. God's presence is my good. And I have made the Lord my God, uh, Lord God my refuge so I can tell all about you. All of a sudden, there's a shift. When we see the prospering of the wicked and we think that they're getting ahead in their disobedience, the psalmist turns and say, oh yeah, how stupid am I? For your presence is what I desire. Your salvation, your goodness is what I desire. Because all of these things of this world are going to continue to, to go away. And that the, the, in our obedience, absolutely there will be worldly consequences. But we need not fear those consequences, for the Lord is better. Again, if I read that truth, right? The more your life looks like the rest of the world, the more your life is content with the world's approval, and less it looks like biblical obedience. One guy, maybe you've heard of, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I actually finished reading his book, Discipleship. Um, if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German believer, uh, pastor and theologian. He had moved away from his country uh, basically to study uh, in schools. Um, and then um, as he moved away from home and he was studying and he was being a pastor, he felt burdened as Hitler was rising uh, in World War II, just prior to World War II, he felt burdened and to move back to his country and pastor there. And so he ends up moving back to Germany during the time of World War II and um, it was a week or just a few weeks before um, he, gets thrown into a, he gets thrown into a concentration camp. And a few weeks before that concentration camp was liberated, he was executed uh, for his faith. He says a lot about what is discipleship. But I want to read this little excerpt right, from a guy who lived it, who understood that there are worldly consequences for obedience. And this is what he says. He says, it is laid on every Christian. Right? It is uh, the cross is the context here. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering that everyone has to experience is the call which summons us away 
So the, the call of the, the gospel is that it summons us away from our attachments to this world. It is the death of the old self in the encounter with Jesus Christ. Those who enter discipleship enter into Jesus' death. They turn their living into dying. Such has been the case from the very beginning. The cross is not the terrible end. Catch this. The cross is not the terrible end of a pious, happy life. Instead, it stands at the beginning of community with Jesus Christ. Whenever Christ calls us, he leads us into death. When we are obedient, we should not be surprised that there is worldly pushback, that there are worldly consequences, there are things that make us feel uncomfortable. But we have to know that that's, that's sort of what we've taken up as believers. That's what God has called us to, to take up our cross. The cross is not a flowery symbol. The cross is a sign of death, Roman crucifixion, of execution. He says, as believers, we have that. And in our obedience, we are accepting this call to death. Does that mean that the Lord won't bless you? Absolutely not. We just read from Psalm 73, even when it looks like the, wisdom, the wicked are prospering. At the end of Exodus chapter 5, so if we go back there, I turned from it too much. At the end of Exodus chapter 5, we do catch a glimpse of this blessing to come, right? And we know the story, but uh, you get Moses' sort of back and forth with God. And he, he, he says, why, why, why did you call me to this obedience? Clearly there are consequences between Pharaoh and now this nation of Israel. And then in, in, in the very next verse, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, so right after Moses says, Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble from this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. Now 6 verse 1. But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will, he will let them go. His strong hand. Talking about God. Because of a strong hand, this strong hand, the Lord is speaking. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. And because of a, uh, because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. Now, we get to this conclusion and we see God working. That even in the midst of Moses did exactly what he was supposed to do. Though he's seeing the worldly consequences, the Lord comes back and affirms him. You're doing what you're supposed to do. I'm going to step in. We need not fear the worldly consequences of our obedience, for we obey the God who holds all things in his hands. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this chance that we've had to, uh, to come before your word. Lord, I pray that as we are, are seeking a life of obedience, as we seek to obey you as our king and as our God, teach us what a life of obedience looks like, that sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be, have worldly consequences. Sometimes people are going to make fun of us. Sometimes uh, we're not going to be as prosperous as even what the wicked might look like. But let us constantly and continually remember the path of the wicked leads to destruction, but that your presence is better than life itself. Teach us your way that we may walk in your truth and enter in your son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. 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 All right, you guys have a great morning.